Welcome to the Wandering Bard podcast. You are listening to an extract from an interview with writer Lisa Blower. So the first piece of work I published was Broken Crockery, which won the Guardian's short story competition back in 2009. So it was a hell of a pedestal to hit straight away uh, that I absolutely wasn't ready for, which is why my first piece of advice to any writer using the competition circuit is to be prepared to win because I wasn't and I missed a lot of opportunities because of it. I was midway through my PhD, uh, which is on female autobiographical practices. And I was doing lots and lots of research on those kind of early prototypes. So I was reading all this kind of 16th century female autobiographies. (laughs) But I was also, you know, my degree was, um, it was a creative and critical writing PhD. So I was knee deep in this critical work. And I was also working on a novel, which was being written in blogs but I was also writing short stories I was I I use short stories really as a bit of a training ground I think for ideas I just lost my nan my nan had, had passed in the June and I was writing an eulogy for her funeral and I was thinking of all the things that she used to say to me as a little girl now my nan was a real character she was proper garrulous she had what I used to call scruffy wisdom. You know, she had an answer for everything, the best advice ever, but she never articulated it very beautifully. But what she said, oh my goodness, it was damn right. She got more views than Blackpool Tower. And I mean, really, she was the most opinion, most opinionated, most judgmental, most political woman I have ever met. But she was such a staggering influence upon my life. I grew up with her. And, you know, she was just this permanent feature in my life. You know, if there was a the ultimate chattering matriarch, it was my nan. You know, she used to sneak me into the bingo with her when I was about seven. You know, she used to sit me under the table. And I was writing this eulogy and I was remembering all the things she said to me as a little girl. I started to write this story, uh, which became Broken Crockery. And it all came about because I I suddenly had this sentence in my head, which was, mum says my nan's in hospital with Margaret Thatcher. And at the time, when my nan was poorly in hospital, Margaret Thatcher was also in hospital because she, I think she tripped over and broken her arm or something. And every time I went to go and see my nan in hospital, she kept going on about her. Oh, I bet her room's dead posh. I bet she's got loads of Lucas 8. And all this kind of stuff, I started to kind of feed into this story. What's really interesting is that the story itself, when it, when it began it was actually called a little bit of love and a lot of broken crockery and I wrote this story and then um, I saw that the Guardian was asking for submissions for a national short story competition and because it was free and because I just did it on a whim I sent it off and then I get this phone call to say that I've won I was just totally bowled over, totally overwhelmed, totally unprepared. And Charlotte Northedge, who'd phoned me up from The Guardian, she said to me, she says, this story's wonderful, but the title's too long and it doesn't work. Can we just call it Broken Crockery? And that's how it began. So that was my first publication in The Guardian. And as I say, not ready at all. Didn't really have a lot in the fridge. I started to get agents who came. In fact, Philippa, who has been my agent ever since, turned up at my front door where I lived in West Kirby. Uh, And 
you know, the rest is kind of history. And, you know, publishers came knocking. They wanted to see novels. They wanted to see what else I had. And I didn't have anything. I was, as I say, I was midway through a PhD on female autobiographical narratives and doing a lot of work on Margaret Cavendish at the time. <laughs> that really wasn't interesting to them. So, yeah, it was uh, quite, a, quite a thing to win and lots of mistakes made at the time that I have learned from and vowed to never make again. My first novel, Sitting Ducks, um, had an arduous journey. It really did. On the back of Broken Crockery, because I'd written about my nan, because it was written from a child's point of view, because it was set in Stoke-on-Trent, I started getting pigeonholed as a working class writer, something that I never really understood at the time because I just couldn't understand where the class element came into it, because I was thinking I'm writing about my nan and I'm writing about Stoke, and oh, well, of course, it's a big working class area of this massively socialist. Uh, and red, of course, um, it's going to be working class. And I'd been asked quite a lot by publishers to write class-based stories about underrepresented people. And I started to revisit the canon, and I could start then began to see where their kind of voices ended and mine began. And I'd reread uh, Ragged Trouser Philanthropists, uh, which I'd read actually uh, at university. And I started to think, actually, I could write about this as a novel because what was actually going on at Stoke-on-Trent at the time, the terraced houses that were built as part of the factories to house the workers, because of the industry of closes and people had kind of moved on, there was a lot of mobility, a lot of people, you know, a big exodus out of Stoke-on-Trent, a lot of migration for employment. These terraces had stood empty for a while and they became, council started to sell them off. There was their houses for a pound scheme that council started to do in order to try and create affordable housing in a city areas. What wasn't really disclosed was the fact that there were these huge loopholes and um, that these houses weren't a pound, uh, that you needed loans of about 83,000. So not necessarily a mortgage, but a loan. So people couldn't afford them. And the only people that could afford these houses were landlords, people who um, had numbers of property and particularly landlords who then turned it into student property. So what happened was landlordism on a massive scale in Stoke-on-Trent. And as a consequence, these houses have started to be used to house asylum seekers, uh, refugees. Stoke has become quite unfortunately a bit of a dumping ground for this. And it's so unfortunate because these poor people are waiting for visas. They've got no rights, etc, etc. Um, so, you know, this is why Stoke has had quite a discriminatory problem when it came to Brexit and, and, and all of that. And utterly understandable in a way, but through no fault of what was happening apart from the councils who set this houses for a pound scheme up. So that's what I wanted to write about. The novel became Sitting Ducks and it's very much a family saga. It's based on a family who are in these houses. Uh, a landlord buys it. Uh, it's an ex-council house property and they assume squatters' rights to stay in the house that Constant Minton was born in and they kind of battle against this landlord and it, as I say it's a family saga at heart. It was picked up twice by publishers and two big publishers. It was dropped twice because this was something I did not know is that a publisher can opt on a book, but then it can they can say, yeah, we really, really want this book and we're thinking about publishing it in, you know, 
in two years time because the publishing industry moves at this glacial pace (laughs) and they're working out how they can market books and how they can place it and the labels they're going to give your book and in the meantime another book comes along that another commissioning editor decides is you know this is the one that we want and on both occasions something came along that those commissioning editors suddenly felt was going to sell better And so poor old Sitting Ducks by this point had been circulating publishers for 18 months since I'd finished a final draft. Opted on twice, dropped twice. Uh, So we then went to the small indie presses. Um, Again, we had it picked up by a small indie, but by this point they said that they couldn't publish it for another I think it was 26 months before they could come out and my agent was saying this is ridiculous we need to get something out there you've got these short stories because I'd been shortlisted for the BBC by this point I'd had stuff uh, out on Radio 4 and everybody was saying where is your novel but nobody wanted it (laughs) so we then went with a small indie press called Fair Acre and we worked with them literally to get the book on the shelves because we wanted something to support the short stories but also to show that I was a novelist as well as a short story writer Um, mainly because in this kind of marketplace there is this argument that short stories don't really sell and it's a very limited market it's a very frustrating situation I feel and one I can argue the toss about <laughs> but um, you know I needed to get a novel out and so we went with the Indie Press Fair Acre it had lots of advantages it got the book on the shelves the disadvantages was it had very little promotion and marketing behind it often small indies don't have the contacts that the bigger publishers do uh, I should also say that one of the publishers who did opt on the book was Unbound which is the crowdfunding platform, which kind of reverses that publication business model where it asks readers to support the book. So you're almost buying the book in order to put the book on the shelves. And we did get to contract with this. But because it's crowdfunding, I just didn't feel comfortable. I was a debut novelist with a very limited readership. I felt like I was having to rely on the friends and family who'd got me this far and to kind of go back and ask them to spend another £15 to try and get this book on the shelves and raise this money and quite a substantial sum of money. I just couldn't do it. It I don't know what it was in me, whether it was a a moment of imposter syndrome or what, but that idea of having to kind of crowdfund for somebody who positively detests social media. (laughs) Oh, I I just couldn't do it. And it's interesting because I'm actually really good friends now with the Unbound publishers and do a lot of work with them. Uh, And they always say that I'm the one that got away. And I often look back and think, oh, if I'd only gone with Unbound, maybe I would have had more of a national platform because these guys are all, you know, ex-Jonathan Cape. Uh, John Mitchison is the ex-marketing director of Waterstones. They would have really placed this book. But as I say, just could not do that crowdfunding model. So, yeah, that was the arduous journey of of sitting ducks. But it did get longlisted and shortlisted for a number of prizes. Um, It didn't win any, but, you know, it got massive support from authors like Niall Griffiths, from Stuart McConey, Kit Duvall read it. She had just published My Name is Leon and she was getting loads of attention. And so she very kindly got in touch with me and she said, why is nobody reading this book? This book is brilliant. And so she started mentioning it in newspaper articles uh, that she was writing about where are all the working class writers And really, that bandwagon has been sort of chugging along ever since. But yeah, that was the start of 
than my novel career. Very arduous and bumpy. The other thing is with the big four publishers is that they see everything as a marketing. You know, they commodify your novel as soon as they get their mitts on it. And that was something that took me a long time to understand, which is ironic, given the fact that I spent 15 years as a marketing and events director. It never really occurred to me that I was a product. That's what your work is. It's a commodified product that is seeking a readership. It's seeking a place in a marketplace. And the sales and marketing departments of a publishing house are constantly looking to place it on the shelves what will it sit next to what author is this like can we you know purge their readership in order to bring them over to you and I've kind of got really savvy with it now I I do understand you know how everybody sits but it is um it's quite difficult to navigate when you're first starting out because you often see all with these rose-tinted spectacles and trying to cut through with your voice is very difficult and that's why I always say you've got to be true to what your voice wants to say. Thank you so much for listening to The Wandering Bard. I'm your host, editor and producer, Ines G. Labarta, and I want to say thank you to the University of Wolverhampton for supporting this podcast. Our theme music is titled Wanderers, and it's by composer Dana Boulet. Please feel free to reach out to us with any comments, any ideas. Please follow us on social media and leave us a good rating on whichever app you've used to listen to this episode. Thank you so much for being there, and see you next time.